Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. Today is some kind of day, Wednesday, September 29th. I'm Carter. Um, this is a show that we're starting, that we do every Wednesday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, it's about helping us all think more clearly and uh, maybe getting into a little bit of street philosophy once in a while. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please go protect and serve that subscribe button, Australia style. Go beat it up, pepper spray it, whatever you need to do. Um, you can always watch at unsafespace.com. We do often get suspended from YouTube. I expect that will continue, especially after today's announcement from YouTube. Um, but you can always go to unsafespace.com. We'll be there. You can sign up for the mailing list, so we'll let you know uh, if we get banned or you know where you have to go to find our stuff. And you can also support the show if you want to. You can go uh, be a paid subscriber, just donate, buy merch, or just share share content. All that's good. So thanks for watching, everyone. Um, all right, so show number two, how do we dive into here? I, I think maybe what I should do is um, I wanna I want to give a shout out to someone named the Goondocks War Council, awesome YouTube name. Uh, last show I talked about the hierarchy of concepts. If you remember, I had parent, parent concepts and child concepts. And the Goondocks War Council, he or she, uh, had a really good clarifying comment on YouTube. And one of the reasons I like doing this series is it helps me think more clearly as well. So sometimes if I say something and I'm not clear or didn't work it out, someone can provide good feedback. This was awesome feedback, so I'm going to just read it. Um, so the Goondocks War Council writes a few clarifying points. And by few, I think he means two. But the first one is, the parent concept is not always discovered first chronologically by you or humanity in general, and the parent concept does not always beget the child. The parent is just the broader category of which the child is a member, but the child concept is not necessarily learned or derived from the parent. Indeed, frequently we will learn the children concept first, and then from that we obtain the parent concept rather than the other way around. So he's first point, he's absolutely correct about that. It's a good clarification. He's also correct about the second point, which is um, the ground level or concrete concepts that people first observe observe and conceptualize as they grow up are not always the most specific or narrow ones. You grow your conceptual hierarchy in both directions, going down and by dividing concepts, by dividing existing concepts into new narrower subconcepts, and going up by grouping existing concepts into new broader concepts. So again, 100% right. He says rocks are a good example of this. As I would say, most, if not all, children will learn rock first and lump all rocks together in that category long before they ever start to identify specific types of rocks like opal and granite. Some people may stop at rock and never go lower than that. So don't assume concrete necessarily means narrow and specific. It means the concept that is graspable at the most basic level, but sometimes that can be somewhat abstract like rock. So uh, long comment, but perfect, great comment. Thank you, the Goondocks War Council, whoever you are. Uh, excellent, uh, excellent clarification on my uh, concept hierarchy discussion from last time. So we're going to skip over that. We're not going to do concept hierarchy again today, but I just wanted to shout out to the, to, to the Goondocks. So 
Let's start today's show by, I can't, I can't not talk about this. So Biden proposed a $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, now I did some looking, I did some looking, um, in 2009, uh, now remember that of course the federal budget increases every year because we're on a runaway train. Um, the entire federal budget in 2009 was three and a half trillion dollars. So this infrastructure plan is the size of the budget from 12 years ago. I, that's ludicrous to me that that's an it's an amazing speed of expansion. Just the infrastructure plan was the entire budget in 2009. Um, also, by the way, uh, the estimated tax receipts, I don't like that they're receipts, we should just call them loot, but the estimated tax receipts for this year, for 2021, is also about 3.5 trillion. So the infrastructure bill is basically, I propose to spend every cent that we will collect on infrastructure. And then maybe government has some other things to do, I don't know. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, <laughs> Republicans trotted out this, this bill, it's 2,500 pages. They did a little press conference and they showed they had it all printed out for dramatic effect. And they pointed out correctly that likely no one is going to actually read this before they vote for it. And now the Biden team, Biden administration is defending their plan. They're saying, well, you guys, it's a three and a half trillion dollar price tag, but it actually costs nothing. And there have been memes made about this now. I think Babylon B had a meme uh, where this woman was saying, my target trip to cost nothing. I spent three and a half trillion dollars, but you know, it actually cost nothing. Um, so people are kind of making fun of this, it costs nothing thing. Uh, and of course, because people are making fun of the it, it costs nothing argument, the pundits who support the cathedral and of course support Joe Biden and his administration, they had to step in and explain to uh, all of us, how stupid the Republicans were, and they should know the difference between gross cost and net cost. Come on, don't you know the difference? And so they explained, as if we were in fourth grade, gross cost, sure, the gross cost is $3.5 trillion, but also the bills got in at extra taxes and stuff to basically raise all of that money. So the net cost is zero. Biden is right. Republicans are retarded and stupid and or dishonest QED. That was the kind of, that's the defense. That's the defense that we're hearing. <laughs> Real Raven says in, in chat, by the way, I'm just going to pause for a minute. Real Raven says MMT. I am looking into MMT and I'm going to have some guys on the show uh, at some point to talk about MMT because there are some concepts in modern monetary theory, which is what MMT stands for, for those of you who don't know. There are some concepts that are really quite interesting, not from a like, I want to spend a bunch of money interesting, but a kind of inverted way to look at uh, fiat currency. So anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so this is this is they're doing so their their argument here is that taxes will get us there. Basically, we're raising taxes on stuff. Uh, that'll get us to net zero. And uh, taxes, of course, are the answer that the left loves to give for a bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, they make good messages on dresses, uh, apparently now taxing, tax the rich. Uh, I saw, um, I saw a guy confront Bernie Sanders 
on camera. I think it was yesterday the video was going around where he was saying, you know, Bernie, what happens when you run out of the rich? And Bernie, to his credit, uh, was <laughs> pointed at the guy and said, I'm coming after you. I'll get it from you. You look like you've got money. Uh, so that was that was good. So ta taxes are the thing. That's the that's the answer to everything. And I thought, you know, since I often run around saying taxation is theft, and some people disagree very vehemently. Um, I thought, hey, for our word this week, let's just look up the definition of a tax because I was actually quite curious uh, if it had changed, what was going on with the definition of a tax over time. I know that might sound boring, but it turns out actually not to be boring at all, at least to me. So here's the Oxford English Dictionary dic definition of tax. Uh, we can go with this first definition because it's the most widely used and, and up to date. A compulsory contribution to the support of government levied on persons, property, income, commodities, transactions, etc. Now at fixed rates, mostly proportional to the amount on which the contribution is levied. All right. Now, we, could, we should define, we should use our, our definition. Uh, template that we talked about last time. So, you know, taking this into account, okay, compulsory contributions, support of government, blah, blah, blah. So I would say, if, we're, if I'm going to define this then in the conceptual hierarchy, I'd say, okay, well, uh, taxes fit into this category of contribution. And I think it's kind of implied monetary contribution, but a contribution, value, valued contribution, um, that's the category it sits under. So it's a form of contribution. Um, but it's differentiated from its siblings in that category by, I count two things here. One, it's compulsory, which means by force. It means That's what compulsory means. And two, it's paid to the government. Those are the things that separate it from other forms of contribution. So, so I looked at that and I said, okay, well, let's look at this form. I'm going to bring you back to here. Let's look at this. Let's look at this word compulsory. So want to make sure, depending on are produced by compulsion. Okay. Compelled, forced, enforced, obligatory. Okay, so this is this is what we think it is. It's by physical force. So then I thought to myself, well, is taxation theft? So I looked up theft. And this is where things for me got kind of interesting. Uh, the action of a thief, which I think is circular, so screw that. So the next one here. The felonious taking away of the personal goods of another. Larceny also with a and plural, an instance of this. This struck me as weird because I was like the felonious taking away. Taxation's not theft by this definition. This is a the felonious, that means a felony. This is illegal. And I, I went down a rabbit hole looking at the word felonious. This is a legal thing. It's only theft if it's illegal. So then I thought to myself, has that always been true? And I looked at the OED's previous edition. The only one they've got here is 1989. Uh, they don't have they don't have older ones. But I was kind of shocked by this. Like theft is defined in relation to the law. That just seems kind of weird. So because I'm a nerd, on the shelf behind me I have this thing. This is a dictionary that was originally published in 1927. It was updated in the 50s. So I looked up the definition of theft. Because I figured 
I was suspicious. I thought, I bet they added this felonious crap at some point. So here we are in the 19, we'll assume it was updated in the 50s at the latest publishing, but worst case, it's the 20s. Theft. The action of a thief. Okay, again, they like the circularity there. Uh, the next one, the act or an instance of stealing, specifically the wrongful taking and carrying away of the personal goods of another. So that's, that has nothing to do with felonious. And it does reference stealing. So I looked up stealing. What do they, what do they mean by stealing? Okay. To steal, to take away dishonestly or wrongfully, especially as to steal money or food, blah, blah, blah. Appropriate without right or acknowledgement. Okay, that's kind of what I would expect. That's what I would expect theft to mean. So then I thought, okay, well, when did they change this? Now, of course, these are all different dictionaries. This is not the OED. This is the New Century Dictionary. And because I'm in, across the pond from you Brits, I have the Oxford American Dictionary from my childhood. So I looked it up in this. This one is from 1980. So, okay, what do the Americans, what does the Oxford American English or American Dictionary say? Well, this one's definition of theft is kind of funny. It has one word. It says theft, stealing. So, okay, you got to go look up stealing. So I looked up stealing. Stealing. Where is it? Steal. To take another person's property without right or permission. To take dishonestly. Okay. Uh, and in all the definitions, I'm reading all of them, in all the definitions, there's no felonious, there's no reference to law, nothing. So I looked at this and I thought, well, what happened? At some point, assuming there was continuity between dictionaries, maybe the OED has always had the word felonious in there. I don't know. I don't have an older copy of the Oxford English Dictionary. But at some point, the word felonious was sneaked into here. And what does that do? Well, if we think, if we use the 1980 definition of theft, the tradition, traditional definition of theft, it's taking without permission. Tax would fall under that. That would be the parent, and tax would be a particular type of taking when it's done by the government for the benefit of the government. That's where that would fit. Taxation would, in fact, be definitionally theft. But if you add the word felonious, it actually carves this out and makes taxation a separate category than theft because it's not illegal. The government has made it okay. Um, so in fact, taxation going by the old, or sorry, the new definition of the OED is not theft, but it is uh, if you don't let them redefine theft and you look at the old definition of theft. By the way, though, if you don't want to use old definitions, the, the current definition of the word plunder means the acquisition of wealth, property, or assets by violent, dishonest, or questionable methods, widespread or wholesale theft is the separate one, second one, blah, blah, blah. So actually, taxation does fall within the plunder definition. So the next time someone says taxation is not theft, you can say, no, but it's plunder. Is that better or worse? I don't know. So that's our word of the day. It's tax. I think it's pretty clear what it means. Let's move on. Actually, let's pause. I don't think anyone has definitions. This is all, or questions. This is all pretty clear. Um, someone says that makes shoplifting in CVS in San Francisco no longer theft. Yeah, because it's not a felony anymore because they've said it's okay. Mm-hmm.
It's not theft. <sighs> All right. All this brings us to, um, let's go back to Biden's plan. So look, his plan costs zero dollars if you take into account all the plundering he's planning to do. That's what that amounts to. So just don't forget to take that into to account. But even that's not really true. It even still, even if you take into account the plundering, it doesn't cost zero dollars, which brings me to tonight's topic that I want to talk about, which is the topic of hidden premises. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that we contribute to this ever-expanding government power is by not learning to explicitly identify when we are accepting hidden premises. Um, premises are used to frame a discussion, right? You can easily get pulled into accepting a lot of bad ideas because we didn't bothered to identify the premises that framed the discussion in the, in the beginning. And the cathedral, mainstream media, college professors, a lot of people do this a lot. Government does it all the time. They get away with this by framing the discussion by, by having hidden premises in whatever their uh, questions that they're asking are or whatever. And those hidden premises lead you down this path. Uh, so you can get embroiled in this conversation about the implementation of uh, some specific government program, for example, instead of debating whether such a program should exist at all. So formally in logic, premises are just assumptions on which arguments um, or statements or questions rely. That's all they are. They're just assumptions. They're logical assumptions. And they're not necessarily bad. Uh, premises are you know, like efficient and needed. We use them all the time. So um, in everyday speech, uh, you know, your spouse might say, if your spouse says, what time will you be home tonight, right? Well, there's a premise in there, which is that you are, in fact, coming home tonight. And if you're not, you might want to have a conversation with your spouse about that, right? There's a premise. Oh, I expect you home. What time will you be home? It's a, it's a harmless, normal premise that's built into that. Did you like that book? Yeah, there's a premise that you actually read the book. The question relies on this premise that you read the book so you can have an opinion. But sometimes premises are hidden and pernicious. Now, when they're pernicious, um, there, there's a classic example of pernicious premises. Um, and this is the loaded question fallacy that you see sometimes. And that can be articulated by, uh, the example people usually use for this is, have you stopped beating your wife, right? It's a yes or no question. Have you stopped beating your wife? Of course, if you answer yes, that implies that you were in fact beating your wife and you've now stopped. And if you answer no, uh, that implies that you're continuing to beat your wife. So hidden in that question is the implied premise, the pernicious premise that you did in fact beat your wife at some point. Um, and so the proper response to that is not yes or no, but obviously it's to reject the question altogether. You shouldn't engage with questions like that, because they're bad faith questions, and they rely on premise, premise that is hopefully false. So the proper response there is just to reject that question. Now, you also see hidden premises in a lot of political questions. So some of them more benign than others, like, who are you voting for? Okay, there's a premise that you're voting for someone. Um, one of my pet peeves, though, is very common. I hear it all the time. 
who you voting, not who you voting for. We need to get the vote out. We need to get the vote out. What's the hidden premise there? All right, the hidden premise is that more people voting will lead to a better country by some mutually agreed standard, right? And this is a bias that you see built into Twitter and Facebook and a lot of mainstream media. They explicitly operate under the assumption that more people voting is better. That's a premise. It's that's actually a political position. Um, that idea is a political. That's a position. It's the belief that more that more direct democracy is better. That's not an obvious thing. Uh, I don't even think it's true. Some people do, but it is a premise baked into that. And so they can say, well, we're objective. We're in how we enforce X, Y, and Z, but we're not objective with respect to how you view voting. You have to view voting as a good thing. You have to view getting more people to vote as a good thing. Making it easier to vote has to be a good thing. That's the premise built into that. And you see that all the time. The particular form of the, the a hidden premise question that I wanna talk about that gets us into the you know, three and a half trillion dollar trouble is this form of the question is, what should we do about blankety blank? What should we do about Pirate Tomsky? He's a problem, whatever it is. What should we do about fill in the, fill in the blank? Um, there's kind of th at least three hidden premises in there. Two of them aren't a big deal, um, usually. The first one is that you and I agree there's a problem. What should we do about blankety blank? Well, well, I assume you and I are agreeing that blankety blank's a problem. Something should be done. Um, the next hidden premise is that we agree on how to tell if it's solved, right? And you can think of this as like smart goals, you know, the specific, measurable, achievable, reliable, time-bound, right? There's some kind of understanding that we'll know when it, when we've solved the problem. There's some thing that we know it's done. Those are okay to have usually. Not always. But the third premise is actually the worst. The third premise is that you and I both want to, or at least will, act in concert together in unison to achieve the goal, that we're a unit. What should we do? What should we do? Now there's legitimate, there's legitimate times when that premise is built in to a question, right? So, and where that premise is built into this particular question, right? So if you're you're married and your spouse turns to you and she says, you know, what should we do about our kid's refusal to brush his teeth? Well, you do both agree it's a problem. You probably both agree about what the solution should be, like, or at least the end goal, maybe not how to get there, but what the end goal should be. And you do agree that you're in this together. Presumably you're not, you know, uh, <laughs> in a forced marriage, right? You're, you're there, you've chosen to be there, you've chosen to co-parent, you've voluntarily chosen to be a part of this unit, which is raising this child together. So it's perfectly acceptable to say, what should we do, right? The same thing it holds true at work. If, you, if you're in a meeting, you're at an ice cream company, and you've got declining sales for your new woke brand of ice cream called, you know, gender fluid surprise or whatever it is, and it's not doing as well as you hoped. It does really well in Berkeley, but not so well elsewhere. Uh, well, you're in a meeting, 
you're having this, what should we do about our declining sales of this ice cream brand? Okay, you probably all agree that it's a problem. You'll all agree that something needs to happen, that there's some, you don't know what it is, but there'll be some change that needs to occur. Um, and you all agree that you've got this kind of vested interest, voluntarily chosen interest, you're there. Um, and you're going to cooperate in your predefined roles, like you each have a role, maybe someone's marketing, someone's, you know, products, uh, you know, taste testing or whatever, quality control, all that kind of stuff. You've got your roles. And there is a we, because if there weren't, you wouldn't go to the meeting or you'd quit the company or whatever. You wouldn't be there if there wasn't a we. You've chosen it. There is a we and you're working together in that capacity as a unit. That's fine. The key component here, obviously, is that this is voluntarily chosen. You have voluntarily chosen to associate yourself with a unit together and then act together. Does all that stuff make sense? How do you solve a problem, problem like Pirate Tomsky? Yeah, I don't know, Yolanda. Uh, that's why I use that. Put cocaine in the ice cream. It's an excellent brainstorming idea. Okay, so the problem is in, in political discussions, you hear this same phrase, what should we do about blankety blank? But it's combined with a predatory technique that's known as forced teaming. And this technique hides from you the fact that this last premise, at least, is not actually true. The other ones might not be true either. So forced teaming um, is, uh, I've talked about this before, but there's a book called The Gift of Fear by a guy named Gavin DeBecker, who does, um, he's a security expert who um, is, is also an expert at stalkers, kidnappings, that kind of stuff, and, and social cues and situational cues that let you know that something's going on. And he has this list of what he calls pre-incident indicators. And one of them is forced teaming. I'm just going to read the definition of it. Forced teaming. This is when a person implies that they have something in common with their chosen victim, acting as if they have a shared predicament when that isn't really true. They speak in terms of we. Speaking in, in we terms is a mark of this. We don't need to talk outside. Let's go in, something like that. So force teaming is this technique where they're lumping you together with them. When you really know there is no together with them. And you hear this, this happens to me. I, I notice this a lot when people talk about political problems. We always hear things like, what should we do about healthcare? What should we do about the economy? What should we do about the price of college? Well, let's walk through those three premises. First of all, do we agree there's a problem? Maybe, usually often in those conversations, we both agree there's a problem. Um, but rarely do we actually completely agree on what the problem is, right? So just take healthcare. Some people might be thinking that the main problem is prescription meds are too expensive. Some people might be upset about, you know, inequality. Some people might be upset that there's not enough innovation. There's there's different problems with healthcare. So, but theoretically, you could be in, in on the same page on that one. Uh, do you agree that you know how to tell if the problem's solved? The second premise. Not usually. Rarely does that actually even occur. Uh, where you both are in agreement about what 
what the solution would look like or what the goal is. Because some people's goal might be equity, other people's goal might be, or, um, you know, personal choice, expanded personal choice or freedom. Um, but the the one that's the the worst is the last premise. This premise that we should do something, that you and I are a unit, that we both want to act together, we're going to act together to achieve a goal about healthcare. This is forced teaming. We're not in a voluntary relationship, right? We didn't get married. We didn't join the same company. We didn't decide to like attend a meeting about healthcare at a nonprofit. We're just a couple of people that live in a country and there's problems in the country. There actually is no we. There's no we. We doesn't exist. You're forcing me into a situation where we're not actually together. And even if we are forced to kind of, we're in this together, like forcibly, because we're under the thumb of the government, we're in the same room or whatever, we're in the same country, there's still no cosmically approved should, like the universe doesn't have some built-in desire that you and I join forces to solve this problem together and come to something. There's no we should, right? And in fact, maybe we shouldn't. And the reason that this is a dishonest formulation this what should we do? The reason that it's dishonest is it excludes, by implication, it excludes the possibility that we don't have to do anything together. It excludes the idea that we each do our own thing. And by the way, when most people say we, they mean what should the government do, right? Well, if that's what they mean, it excludes the possibility that the government actually shouldn't do anything, that the government isn't the answer. So. You know, if, you, if someone says, what should we do about healthcare or what should we do about the economy or, or college tuitions or whatever, and you say nothing, we shouldn't do anything, that's taken to mean that you don't care about the problem. Uh, and the assumption is if you agree that it's a problem, then you agree that the government should solve the problem. That's the hidden premise. The agreement that the government should solve the problem. It's the, it's the, and it's the pernicious premise, right? The answer might be for that particular case, it's not for us to decide. We don't, we shouldn't be ganging up and, and joining a gang of bullies, right? Uh, maybe that, uh, I'll give you a couple analogies for this. If I went around and I rounded up all the owners of a bunch of major sports teams, let's say I went to the NBA and the Major League Baseball and NFL and NHL, uh, maybe I went, I, I'll throw in the Premier League for the Brits. Um, and I got them all in together in a room and I said, Hey, I noticed there's some inequality here. Uh, I've been looking at your teams and I noticed that not many transgender Japanese people are in the starting lineups. What should we do guys? Right. That would be kind of preposterous, right? I will be thrown out of the room. I'm not a party to the problem in the first place. It's not my business. Um, and if I think it's a problem, I'm feel, I can go start a scholarship program for transgender Japanese people who want to be in the NHL. I'm free to do that. But I can't really force other people to solve the problem that I see. I'm not free to do that. And the idea that I should be doing that is kind of ludicrous. Uh, I'll give you a, maybe a, another example. Uh, a racier example, I guess. I could say, I could go, I could go to the government and I could say, Hey, Hey everyone, I'm having a political discussion now. I've studied Tinder, you know, and I've noticed that 
only the top 20% of guys get to have sex with about 80% of the women on Tinder. And this is unequal, obviously. This is an inequity. And a lot of guys just aren't getting laid enough. It's, just, it's a big problem. Uh, so uh, what should the government do about it, ladies? What should we do? Right, how about a sex tax? Maybe we could spread the sex around a little bit, right? If I went and did that, I would be considered not only crazy, but people would call me lots of nasty names like a predatory misogynist and everything else. Because it's not my it's not my place to make that decision. The government shouldn't actually do anything about inequities in sexual access. That's not a role of the government. But when it comes to politics, for lots of things, no one bats an eye at this question, what should we do? And the question, what should we do, really means how should the government redistribute assets? Now, fortunately, the government's not in the business yet of redistributing sexual assets. Mostly they're talking about money. Um, but the premise here is that the government has the moral authority and indeed the obligation to seize and distribute assets to solve problems. That's the premise. And that's the premise that needs to be rejected. So before I continue on this, let's check with chat. Does anyone have any questions, comments, complaints in chat? I'm going to wait for a minute and read. Ross says, Carter should think about this in terms of liberty as a civic concept, your ability as a citizen, citizen to make unfettered use of the commons instead of freedom, individual choice, and possibilities. You should elaborate on how that would be different. Um, I also don't believe in the concept of the commons as a valid philosophical concept, so it would be difficult for me to do that. Someone, <laughs> ideas for Penny says, that's one of the reasons some cults are successful. They guarantee sex. Sure, but even cults are voluntary. Um, so, all right. So there's actually another hidden premise in the what should we do about question that I want to talk about. <clears throat> um, because this one, I think we've, we're frogs in a pot that's been boiling, like been slowly, slowly getting hotter and hotter and it's boiling and, and People just don't sometimes realize that the state of things as they are now is not the way that they've been, and they don't need to be this way. So the, the, the other hidden premise in this what should we do question is the central planning premise. Um, this is this idea that planning, like central planning by a few experts, looking at the system as a whole, right? The system, let's just talk about the US for a second. Looking at the system as a whole, is better somehow than 330 million different uh, plans operating voluntarily and interacting with one another, right? Because uh, assuming each person has their own plan. So in other words, it's this idea that central planning is just better. Now, I want to, maybe another show we'll talk about this, but uh, I'm going to highlight it for you now. Better here is a value judgment. Some words are value judgment words. Better is one of them. It's a value judgment. And value judgments always imply two things. In this case, it's whom and by what standard. So for or what purpose and standard. So better. Better for whom? 
for whom is it better? And by what standard is it better for them? Better doesn't mean anything without those two questions uh, answered. It's just kind of this feel-good word. It's better that we do it this way. Better doesn't mean anything unless you know who it's better for and, and in what, by what standard is it better? How are you measuring better? Otherwise, it's irrelevant, right? You can say things like, Michael Jordan is a better basketball player than I am, right? But we know what standard we're measuring. That standard is <laughs> playing basketball, right? At basically any stat that you could get. And we can say better, we say, well, better, better for whom? Well, better for people who want to win or watch winning stuff. Like I would be better than Michael Jordan if the goal was to suck, right? I would be better at that. Um, but that's not the goal. If you want winning competitive, exciting basketball, that's more likely to beat the other team. Michael Jordan's clearly the better choice. Um, so better is a value judgment. So anyway, the central planning is this, the idea is that it's better in this abstract, undefined way than letting people interact voluntarily. Now in America, this idea of central planning, I don't know about, I don't know the rest of the world, so I'm just gonna talk about America. In America, this idea was popularized by the progressives in the late 19th century. Um, they believed that the free market, now remember the free market had created like vast amounts of wealth at this point, it had increased the standard of living of millions of people. Um, but of course there were still things that weren't great. Um, it was still way better than, you know, <laughs> being a serf in the Middle Ages, but things weren't perfect. Things are never perfect. Uh, the, the progressives believed that the industrial society had reached a level of complexity that required expert, centrally planned inter in intervention in everything. Otherwise, they thought it would be this wasteful, inefficient thing. And it's also too dynamic. They don't like changing stuff, right? They, they keep it under control. They don't want it changing too fast. They don't want it to be wasteful. So they thought it'd be better if, if people planned, a few people centrally planned. That was the progressive position, which I don't think has changed even for modern progressives. They generally believe that. So they believe that everything should be supervised and regulated by experts. And experts really, they, they, they viewed them as objective scientists. You can view them as bureaucrats if you'd like. That's what they believed. Um, and they viewed these bureaucrats as the fourth branch of government. That was how the progressives viewed this. Um, and out of the progressive movement, um, you know, they invented they invented this administrative state. Uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1917 um, actually enshrined a lot of this, uh, but the things that came out of the progressive movement, the Federal Reserve, income and corporate taxes, uh, expanded antitrust stuff, uh, Federal Trade Commission stuff, Tariff Commission stuff, workers' compensation and labor laws and minimum wage and that kind of thing, compelled schooling of children, all of this is part of the progressive uh, movement. All of it, it is under this idea that centrally planned administrators do a better job of managing uh, everything, basically. Um, and the progressive also believed that laissez-faire was unethical. Now, a lot of these people were Marxists, um, or they at least had a Marxist approach to labor. So 
they you know they look at a factory and they think oh what makes that factory valuable is that muscles built it right or they see electricity and they're like oh the physical act of stringing the wires from one pole to another that's what makes it valuable um and of course those things are necessary you need someone to do that work but they ignore the fact that the innovation is 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 primarily a mental activity and that's what makes it valuable right what makes the wires valuable is that someone figured out how to generate electricity on one end transmit it across the wire with minimal loss and make it do work on the other end that's the valuable part and, and i'm using a uh i'm using the word valuable that's clearly a value judgment that's a thing that's valuable to humans who would like to do less work uh and be more productive like that's you have a washing machine so you're not washing by hand like it's valuable to to anyone who wants to do that all right so that value doesn't come from the physical, primarily from the physical labor of stringing the wires. That labor is honorable and needs to be done and has value. But the thing that makes it special, the thing that where it derives its primary special value, its added value of just having some nice looking wires hanging around is the innovation. It's the intellectual labor that was done. Um, you know, that's where the value comes from. Without that intellectual labor, labor, you know, oil is just prehistoric dead tree sludge, right? Until you invent an internal combustion engine, then it's very important, right? So it's the it's it's that thinking process, it's that innovation that matters. And the Marxist view of labor ignores that basically completely. Um, and the other thing about these progressives is they they did have there were they were eugenicists. Uh, I don't want to say among them, a lot of them were eugenicists. Um, and they they basically classified laborers as either victims of exploitative capitalism or they classified them as threats to the other laborers based on their ethnicity, their biology, right? They wanted to get rid of the undesirables. That's why they wanted minimum wage. They thought the way to get rid of uh, undesirables was if you had a minimum wage, the undesir the, the under underdesirables, uh, the the ones they didn't like, uh, would um, not be able to find jobs because they generally at the time they generally took jobs for less money, um, and so the the idea was well we can we can weed them out by having minimum wage. That's the lovely origins of minimum wage. So that's what the progressives did. And it was really the progressives who popularized this this central planning idea in America, and it's their mindset that that causes us now, many of us now, to approach politics with questions like, "What should we do?" That's a central planning premise. It's this premise that someone in Washington should do something about blah blah blah, right? That came from the the late nineteenth century progressives. That's what that is. But we need to reject that premise. It's a bad premise. It's not true. Um, uh, first of all, central planning is immoral, right? No third party has a right to insert itself, to step in between two other people voluntarily transacting with each other, right? If they're having a mutual nonviolent exchange, a third party doesn't have a right to come in and say, you can't work for this amount. It has to be at least this amount. You can't freelance. Look at AB5 in California. You can't freelance. Oh, you want to write? be a writer? Sorry, you can't be a writer in this way. You have to do it in this other way. You want to be an Uber driver, Uber driver? You have to do it in this way. Can't do it that way. They don't have a right to do that morally. 
right? You can't buy you can't buy this product from this person who wants to sell it. It's got to be sold this way and made this way and go through this approval process and only these people can sell it under these rules, right? It's immoral. It's immoral. It's also I think supremely arrogant to the point of stupidity. Um I think central planning is one of the most arrogant absolutely stupid things that you can think to do. Um, let's look at the U.S. again. U.S. is a market of, what, 330 million people, roughly. Uh, at any given time, let's just look at one aspect of, of your life, like one kind of preference you may have, like a yes-no. Do you want Fruit Loops for breakfast, right? Very, very small yes-no thing. And obviously, there's a plethora of these decisions and preferences you have in your day. But one little thing, each person's got their own preferences, their own priority of values, their own tastes and interests. And if we just look up one aspect of that, um, now this is not, I just, I'm gonna use this by comparison, it's not a perfect analogy because this is not actually how people are interconnected, but it'll give you some idea of scale. There's a reason I'm doing this. If we have 330 million people, if you draw a graph of 330 million dots and you connect, you connect each dot to each other, so each person has a connection to every other person, just one connection, a yes-no kind of connection, right? You end up with 4.9 times 10 to the 16th connections if there's kind of one relationship between each person. Now, I know we don't have, that's not how we work. I'm not saying that's how we work, but that's going to just give you an, a, a scale of what connectedness between that number of people looks like. And so multiply that out by, you know, if this pen, there's a, or this pencil, there's a supply chain with probably thousands of people involved making decisions. And, and each person has, it's not just one thing, whether they want Fruit Loops or not for breakfast, they've got a very complex life with all these uh, different competing values that they're making decisions about, desires. On top of all of that, uh, <laughs> things change over time for them. So it's this incredibly complex thing. And by comparison, the human brain has 86 billion neurons. Now, 86 billion neurons is seven orders of magnitude fewer than the connection number that I just gave you, the 4.9 times 10 to the 16th. So again, you could do connections between neurons and blah, blah, blah. But the point is the astronomical scale of how 330 million people need to interact with every little aspect of their lives in the most efficient way, right? And as I mentioned, on top of that, think people aren't static. Their needs and desires change over time. One minute they'll want Fruit Loops, the next minute they don't. Um, so the free market, how the free market handles this is each person makes his own decisions. It's not centrally planned. It's decentralization, right? There are 330 million planners. <laughs> you plan your own life. Um, and the price that you pay for an item actually contains, when you have that system, that price contains, it's the distillation of a whole bunch of information. On the one side, it's, it's, a, it's a distillation of how much someone's willing to sell the product for, given the complexity of their lives, the, the complexity of the supply chain, uh, distributing it, marketing it, taking into account how much you know their time is worth and the effort they put in and, Every, like there's a whole bunch of complexity. It's got all that built in into the price and it has how much someone else is willing to 
buy a product for, taking into account the effort that went into earning the amount to buy it, right? And an estimate of its potential value to them in the future, not just their monetary value, but maybe just their the entertainment value or their, their emotional value of this thing. It's massively complex. So 300 million people are looking at prices of products that they want to buy or don't want to buy in relation to their own needs and desires, right? And um, they're also looking at how much they will charge for their products. Most people, their product is just their labor, right? But sometimes people sell, I don't know, knitted scarves, right? They sell their knitting or you're just selling your labor. Either way, you're looking at the price of that what, what you're willing to work for, what you're willing to sell your labor for. You're looking at the price of products and valuing them by some probably pretty complex thing. Half the time, people don't even know what they want all the time. Sometimes it's a difficult decision, even for us, just about our own lives, right? And you're making those decisions about what to buy and what not to. So that's how that's how this all works together. Is it the most efficient thing in the world? Like, is it is it optimally efficient? I don't know, probably not, because we'll each make mistakes and be like, oh, I shouldn't have bought that car, or I should have done that, and it would have been better if I did this, and I made a mistake here. Fine, but it works pretty well. And along comes a central planner. He went to Berkeley, he studied Marx and Keynes in school, then he went to work for a brokerage on Wall Street, uh, got bailed out, worked his way up, um, and now he's part of the fourth branch of the government, right? And he comes in and he says, yeah, forget all the free market stuff. I can tell you what the price of corn should be or what the interest rates on home loans should be or how much you should be able to charge for your labor. I know, I have spreadsheets. I'm an expert. I, there's literally nothing more arrogant that I can think of than that attitude. It is, it's disgusting, that attitude. The only people more arrogant are those like the crazy people who actually think that they're reincarnated Jesus or something like, but it's a, it's a, it's pretty arrogant to come in and be like, oh yeah, I, I can run 330 million people's lives better in this area. I, I know what the price should be. And to make matters worse, uh, most central planners like this, they base their plans on another false premise, this one, they, it's a false premise about the nature of human beings. When they have a good day, when they're doing well, they're still bad, when they're doing well, they view humans as kind of these simple behavioral response machines, like uh, step on the gas, it goes faster, apply the brake, it slows down. That's how they view humans, right? And you even hear them talking about the economy that way sometimes, like, oh, we have to apply the brakes to the economy or you know, throw some gas on, right? They'll say that. And they un and that's how they understand humans when they do things like uh, intentionally try and change behavior, when they impose like sin taxes. We want people to smoke less, so we're going to add a tax to, to cigarettes. Or we want them to drive less, so we're going to tax gas. Right? Or we want them to drive electric cars, so we're going to give them tax credits for electric cars. They expect a behavioral change, and they view you as a very simple input-output system. Cost more, you'll do less. Problem solved, that's how you are, human. It's almost like they're aliens, right? But sometimes they don't even do that. Sometimes they view you as basically an immutable producing machine, right? Let's look at this Biden thing. Oh, they need more money? They need three and a half trillion dollars? Just tax it, just tax it. The machines will keep working the same amount 
and produce the same amount of stuff, they won't change their behavior. The taxing is free. We'll just take it. It will have no effect. They'll just keep doing it. They'll just produce more, right? You want them to behave differently? Just write a regulation to make them do what you want. And nothing else will change. Their costs won't change. They won't change, you know, they won't change businesses. Their quality won't change. They'll just, you know, they'll just adopt your regulation magically and nothing will change. The latest example that I've seen of this is with these uh, unemployment benefits for COVID, right? They, they ran around extending unemployment benefits everywhere. And, you know, they shouldn't have done the lockdown in the first place, so I, I get it. But they ran around and they, they extended all these unemployment benefits everywhere. And, you know, people said, uh, guys, you know, people will respond to extended unemployment benefits by not looking for jobs as hard. Oh, pshaw, that won't happen. Come to find out now, they're shocked to discover. Hey, it turns out studies show that people take longer to look for a job when their employment's, uh, unemployment is extended. Yeah, they do. So sometimes they act like you just will not change your behavior at all. And sometimes they act like you're this simple kind of machine while well, I'll tax the cigarettes, you'll smoke less, uh, which I guess is better. It's better to view humans as, you know, entities that whose behavior changes based on incentives rather than just assuming that you're, you know, you don't change at all. But both of those views ignore what makes humans humans. Um, and that's our motivations. One of the things that makes us who we are is our, our feelings, our emotions, our motivations, why we're motivated to do what we do. And our motivations don't change. And our creativity and our ingenuity and our ability to adapt to the environment based on our motivations and goals, right? So they, you know, when they have this static model for how humans work, right? Let's just look at sin taxes. Oh, we're gonna tax a thing we don't want you to do. We're gonna tax smoking, whatever. Okay, you might change behavior on the surface level. You might get people to smoke less, but the motivation that causes them to smoke, smoke remains and they'll find other ways to do it, right? They'll invent creative workarounds. They might shift to other vices. They might go to the black market. Actually in California, we can talk about weed for a second. In California, they heavily regulate and they uh, heavily tax marijuana. Black market's huge because that doesn't make people pay the tax. They just find a way around it. They go to the black market, right? Um, so people, people get creative, but their motivations don't change. They just figure out another way to have that emotional need fulfilled. Um, long-term capital gains is one. Biden's wanting to increase the long-term capital gains tax, right? Oh, we'll get more money if we increase the long-term capital gains. Maybe you will in the short term, but what are people's motivations? You won't change the motivation. The motivation is to maximize their gains. It's to maximize their returns. They're going to invent creative ways to achieve that goal, and they'll change their behavior. They might decrease their long-term investments. Right? They might shift to different strategies that are higher risk and uh, you know, shorter, shorter term. They might invest in their own company more um, or do things like spend more money on capital expenses or invest overseas with that money instead of doing what would traditionally be taxed as capital gains. So yeah, they'll change their behavior. But you're not gonna, you're not, you don't change who they are. You don't change their motivation. Humans aren't just this like, I put the brakes on, therefore they slowed down. It's like squeezing a balloon. They're just gonna go do something else. You can say, oh, we're gonna increase corporate taxes. They haven't paid their fair share. Okay, we'll increase corporate taxes. 
But corporations have an incentive to maximize their profit, maximize their margins. That's what shareholders want. Even the people who complain about corporations, who likely have pension funds, who have stock in these corporations, right? You want a return. That's why people invest in stock. That's why, now, I think there's a lot of problems with the, the public markets, don't get me wrong, but they've got that motivation. So what are they gonna do? They might change jurisdictions, they might cut expenses, they might invest in capital. So just as an example, uh, let's say I've got, I'm running a company and I've been considering replacing some of my workers, let's say it's McDonald's, I'm considering replacing some of my workers with robots, but it's gonna cost me, I don't know, $100 million, this first program to do. It's just, it's a big expense to do. It might have a long-term gain, I think, but I don't wanna spend the cash on it. I'm gonna postpone that and see if the you know robots become cheaper or things change or whatever. Um, but now you've increased my corporate taxes. So now I'm, it's December, we're worrying about the, the our, our tax liability. I'm sitting down with my CFO and we say, well, maybe we should spend this $100 million here so we don't get taxed on it. What can we spend it on? You know, I've been thinking about trying to automate some stuff. Let's buy some robots now. Those are the kind of decisions that happen. People respond, they change, they're thinking, entities with goals and motivations. And the central planners never seem to remember that. So not only do they have this kind of crazy inflated view of their own abilities and their own their own ability to do better than 330 million people with their own brains worrying about their own lives, not only do they have that kind of view of themselves, they're also kind of elitist and condescending. They don't even really view you as human. You're just a cog in their machine. Right, you're an easily predictable component uh, of their giant, you know, pipe dream that they're very excited about. And it's that kind of an attitude. It's that kind of an attitude that results in two thousand five hundred pages and three point five trillion dollar infrastructure bills. They're going to do everything. They're going to do everything. Um, and the Democrats are going to tell you that well, you have to pass it to find out what's in it. And the Republicans, they might skim the contents of this bill uh, to complain about it, but um, you know, when it's their turn, they'll be hawking a different 2,500 page document uh, that they haven't read. Um, you know, both of them agree that just about everything that you do, every decision that you make, um, everything that you should, every decision that you ought to be left alone to make on your own, should somehow be subject to their incessant, you know, Karen-like regulation, oversight, management, and taxation. Uh, and it all starts, all of this starts with the failure to recognize the hidden false premise in the question, what should we do? That's where it starts. It starts with that hidden premise. The premise that government should do something, that we, i.e. government should do something. So that's all I wanted to really cover today. I, I nailed an hour again, look at that, it's exactly an hour. Um, that's all I wanted to cover today. I, I would like you guys to get good at noticing hidden premises in questions. They'll happen all the time. 
Sometimes though, they're, they're nefarious. Sometimes they're hidden premises that you, once you realize them, then you go, oh, wait a minute, I don't actually agree with this, right? Um, sometimes they're benign, but they're there a lot. And that's, like I said, that's one of my, one of the ones I, that I think has done a lot of damage is this, what should we do? We're all gonna have a conversation about we should do. And that's not a conversation that should be having, that should be happening. We shouldn't have those conversations. We shouldn't have a conversation about healthcare because it shouldn't be any of our business. We shouldn't do anything. The government shouldn't do anything. You should have a conversation with your healthcare or with your doctor about your healthcare or your family or whatever, not we. All right. I think that's it. Oh, <laughs> Anarka Rika says, thanks for the stream off to Michael Malice. Well, I uh, enjoy Michael Malice. I, Michael's awesome. Uh, I'll, I don't think there's any questions or uh, comments, but I'm going to take a minute before I leave just to look through here in case you guys have anything you want me to talk about. Um, let's see. Alice K says, they're simultaneously narcissistic and insecure. People who only get off controlling other people and stealing their fruits, like runt salmons who swim low to steal their chance at fertilizing. I'm not a cool enough fisherman to know the analogy, but it, it sounds like an apt analogy, Alice. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they are. Um, I think being an authoritarian, I think being controlled, wanting to be controlled and, and wanting to control are two sides of the same coin. So, um, oh, as, Bever as Beverly is saying, let me know any other topics you want me to discuss on future shows. I'm happy to, to discuss them. Um, bring them up, whatever. Uh, don't know exactly how, where this show will go, but uh, I like doing it live um, because I do want I do want to get a little bit interactive, but I also know that a lot of this stuff is pretty heady. So um, it helps me clarify. And again, I want to thank uh, the people who've, who've left um, feedback on YouTube. I really do appreciate that kind of stuff. So thanks, guys. Um, let me know if you want me to speak to about anything in particular, I will see you next week at the same time, 5 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget to go, uh, go hit that like button or subscribe button. It's actually better for us. So go hit the subscribe button and uh, let Susan know that, I don't know what you let her know. Maybe we shouldn't let Susan know about this channel. Hit the subscribe button anyway. Um, let Susan know that you won't be silenced. And um, I'll see you guys on Friday for Coffee Break. Take care. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. 
pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and scheduled for ideological vaccination. To avoid cancellation, please update your ideological contact tracing app on your smart device immediately. Here's a fun fact. Only vaccinated black lives matter. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.